0: Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast, the podcast where we bring up-to-date historical research to you in an accessible and digestible way. The History with Jackson podcast is presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. So thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of History with Jackson. Today in our episode we're talking to Kenneth McInnes all about Russia and democracy And I think you're really going to love this conversation. It's a great conversation. We examine so many different parts of Russian history. But first, before we go into the episode, we're going to have a little message from our supporters. And then I'll leave you in the hands of Kenneth. Now, you might know that the Historians magazine is the other history product that I am involved in. Now, I think this magazine is really important and really great for everyone. Because it is the magazine by historians for historians. The Historians Magazine tries to make history accessible for all, so that everyone can try and learn something and get involved in some history that they want to get involved and learn about. Now, The Historians Magazine isn't just one magazine. We also have a kids' magazine called The Little Historians Magazine, which is based around the national curriculum for primary school children, and there is also the great podcast hosted by yours truly called The Historians Magazine Podcast. Go check them all out because it really is a great place to learn about different histories in an accessible and entertaining way. So that is The Historian's Magazine. Now, here at History of Jackson, I really enjoy bringing different history content to you every month. And one place that I get my history content from is Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a podcast for you if you are fascinated by the history of art and culture and you want to learn more about works of art famous artists or exciting archaeological discoveries accessible art history aims to provide to you free quality art history content for anyone who is curious it is committed to history knowledge content and having fun whilst learning i really enjoy learning my art history from accessible art history the podcast so, if you want to learn more about art history, head to Accessible Art History, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast player. That is Accessible Art History, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today, we are talking with Kenneth McInnes all about his book, With Amberley, When Russia Did Democracy, from St. Vladimir to Tsar Putin. How are you doing, Kenneth?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Uh, summer's arrived and it's sunny, sunny here where I am and I hope that's the same for you.
0: Yes, yeah, it's been incredibly hot, uh, so I've been trying to keep in the shade. And I must say, I really enjoyed reading your book and I'm really excited to get into a conversation about it today.
1: Ah, th- thank you. Um, uh, Thank you very much for the w- welcome.
0: Uh, so it's OK. So uh, first question I I, I want to ask you really is... What inspired you to write this book? Because obviously, it's a very, you, you're covering a breadth of history here. Uh, and I'd, I'd be interested to find out what inspired you.
1: Well, I was a student of the Russian language. And as part of my university course, I had to spend a year living in Russia to really learn the language. And so I showed up in the Soviet Union in 1991, just when it was going through its very democratic um, transformations, revolutions, you, you might even say. And it, So it was very interesting to see all that history in the process. Um, Then I ended up um, living in the country for the next twenty years, ten years through the democratic nineteen nineties, and then ten years under um, under the first year, uh, first decade of Putinism. And just from living there, I found things that were very democratic, different to our own system, that interest me. For example, I worked for thirteen years at an art museum, and there the staff voted. Or elected their director um, and deputy director, which you 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 don't get in, for example, the, the Tate or the National Gallery. Um, I owned an apartment, and when you paid your rates, if you weren't happy with something um, with your roof wasn't being fixed, then you could just strike out the payment for that. And um, so all these things, like what I would call democracy, which means power people having real power and um, that was besides watching the television it was very free it was very liberal it was a bit anarchic and um just observing the politics as well where there, w- there was complete plurality in a way which um, just seems unthinkable today under putin and looking back at that time um i look i feel it's like it was an I, Seeing now from the position where we are today, it was like an island of democracy within the two great oceans of communism and then Putinism, which is now well into its third decade. So I wanted to write about the nineteen nineties, and but then when I started writing a, a sort of foreword of what came before them, the, I found the democracy even before then was even more interesting when you start to dig deeper. And um, when I returned to the UK, I worked uh, for a time for Parliament in London, where my job was also to promote democracy. And it generally got me thinking about um, what does, you know, real democracy mean and how can we really achieve democracy? And are there lessons to be learned from studying um, how other countries uh, approach the idea of democracy and people power?
0: I think it's really interesting there how your, your kind of lived experience of Russia between, I quite like that phrase, between the two islands of, of communism and, and Putinism uh, really informs your research and informs your book because you know, those, those themes of communism and Putinism and democracy are, are present throughout, really. Now, we're looking at the Russian state, and it, you know, today you look at a behemoth um, that's incredibly huge and, and, and spans great, uh, or spans two continents, really. And you know looking at the USSR you have an even bigger entity where does this state originate from then
1: right so the basically the date 862 ad is generally the date that's taken as the the start of the Russian state and actually for that matter both Russia and also Ukraine and Belarus um so we're back Just as a bit of context, even with it's similar to what was happening in our own countries, um, Scotland and England. Uh, So we're we're at the the time of uh, Alfred the Great. Um, Scotland, for example, it it became a kingdom, a unified kingdom just 19 years before Russia Um, in 843. England um, generally thought of as being unified in year 927. and then at the same time, also in Europe, you have the Vikings going round, um, setting up states at the exact same time in the Duchy of Normandy or in Sicily. And so and they were doing the exact same thing. They weren't just going to the west. They were also going to the east through the traveling through the future Russian lands and um, um, down to the along the rivers, down to um, Constantinople and the Black Sea. and. They set up also. They set up a state in, um, in the fu- future Russian state um, uh, called Rus after the name of the tribe, which is believed to have come from Scandinavia to set up this first state, the the Rus. And um, now the lands were occupied by generally East Slavic tribes. There were also some Finno-Ugric and Turkic tribes, um, and we know about them just as. We know a lot about, say, in Britain, we know about the Celts from the Roman historians. Also, we know a little bit, although the Slavic tribes didn't have literacy at that time, we know about them from the Byzantine, the Eastern Roman Empire historians. um, And they chronicle that um, in the 6th century, they were living under democracy. So they they governed themselves and they had... um, an assembly called the vete it comes from the old slavonic root vete which is also the same um origin as the word soviet and it was like a soviet councils just assemblies where um, they democratically decided their own affairs so when the um these um the scandinavians came in, that's in the late 9th century they um It was almost, um, they set up a state, but the the people there, they were already running themselves. And now, according to the official history, according to the Primary Chronicle, which admittedly, it was written um, a couple of centuries after this event in um, 862, the people of Novgorod, um, that's the part closest to Scandinavia in in Russia, they invited um, this Prince of the Rus, um, a man called Rurik, to come and rule over them. Um, but to be like a, a figurehead, um, because they already had their, as you said, the, the, their own council. And um, it was interesting that he was invited to come and rule over them, but he wasn't allowed to live in the capital Novgorod in case he took over with his own detachment. Um, so the Novgorod is where the state begins. But then 20 years later, um, Rurik's uh, successor, a man called Alek, travelled down south to the city of Kiev, which was a much richer city already in in existence. And he made Kiev the capital of um, of what became eventually a sort of federation of um, principalities uh, of, of, of these East Slavic tribes. And so the initial state, it was called Kievan Rus because named after the Rus tribe and um, uh, Kievan because Kiev was the capital.
0: You can definitely, you can definitely see some you know, roots of what's happening today within these, within these um, historical discussions and the context as well around what some people are saying about this conflict. But I, I, I want to pick on an interesting point there because the date that we're looking at is incredibly early. Uh, for a democracy like this, so what you know what was happening in Novgorod that was sorry, how different was what was happening in Novgorod to what was happening elsewhere?
1: Well, it was very interesting, and it was very much ahead of its time. Um, for a start, in Novgorod was a direct democracy, which is already interesting of, of its own accord, and it wasn't just um. An ancient city-state like, uh, say, Athens, or a small Swiss canton, because in um, Novgorod actually it eventually grew into almost like a large colonial empire, which covered the entire northern half of European Russia. And so, um, in the capital Novgorod, did this the Veche, the central assembly, which took all the decisions and um, passed all the laws. Um, heard all court proceedings, elected all officials, that was just in the capital and in the other, the districts, in other towns and in villages, they had their own vici. So in a way you had direct democracy across this whole um, country. So in that sense, direct democracy, it was like the a little like the ancient um, city-states, but it was also very ahead of its time, very modern in a way in like the the Vichy. It had procedures, it had positions, almost like the same as in the House of Commons today with officials like the sergeant-at-arms who keeps order, the leader of the House who introduces the bills, and they even had um, political parties. Um, And we're talking about this is. About the time of the 12th century, when England didn't even have the beginnings of its House of Commons, and they had um, the equivalent of political parties. Now they were they weren't um, so much ideolo- um, ideological. They were more they were based on the five districts of Novgorod. Um, so there were there were five parties, but still somewhere because some districts were richer than others. So there was a sort of um, economic and slight class um um in interest there um but this also meant that there was constant competition for power because um all as I say one of the very interesting things was that all posts were elected and so um you only't no matter if you were the prince the archbishop or just um maybe like a, a a local leader you only held that post for as long as you had the the confidence of the electorate once you lost that you were out of your job. So you could stay in your job maybe for a number of years, or maybe even just a couple of days or weeks. And um, incidentally, this also applied even to the church. Um, Novgorod um, did a very interesting take on religion. um, It was the Russian Orthodox Church, but they elected their own uh, church officials, including the archbishop and they could um, remove them from power if they wanted there was one time they went through a very long period of rainy weather and so that for that reason they decided to get rid of the archbishop and um when they elected an archbishop what even was interesting was the church officials were not allowed to take part and it was the people who elected the church officials and then whoever was archbishop was then sent to the metropolitan of Kiev to be um officially um in in endorsed um so there was a whole and as i said these so you have these political parties and so if you wanted to be like the like the prime minister it was supposed to be called the Posadnik, you had to have keep the support of either one party or sometimes even a coalition of parties and over the 400 period period of novgorod's history there was a general fair representation of 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 each of these uh, parties. So there was a whole system of checks and balances, um, and no dynasty or elite civil service could become entrenched, because uh, obviously civil service, you, you were only in power for, um, while you were popular, while you had public confidence. Also, um Dynasty, um, they had a prince. It was like a figurehead that they could, um, that they themselves would elect and remove from power if they w- wanted to, and they actually did that very often. Um, for example, one of their princes is the famous Alexander Nevsky, who won the a very popular figure at the moment in Putin's Russia, and um, who won the famous battle of the Neva in twelve forty over the Swedes. But uh, that same year, the people of Novgorod, after his military triumph, the people of Novgorod just got rid of him, and then, but then they invited him back in um, um, the following year in good time when there's another battle, the Battle of the Ice over the Teutonic Knights in twelve forty two. So it was both; um, it had its roots back in the the sort of original Greek um, democracy, but it was also very modern looking and. Um, and also had points which could in, in which possibly we are deficient even today it did have its that that was how it all was on paper. Of course it wasn't perfect over the four hundred years um, during the in the second half it became oligarchic um which is maybe a good uh, lesson for us in democracy, just how to make sure democracy always stays on, on, on path, because it's just a good historical example what went wrong with this very good democracy and um, it just gradually sort of evolved into an oligarchy, which is actually what you saw happening a lot in some of the Greek um, um, city-states.
0: It's it's quite interesting there that you can see a lot of parallels between how some democracies are today Um, and, you know, even when you're talking about the different structures and the checks and balances and the procedures, you can see some parallels with the British system. And then, when you talk about an oligarchy, you can see some parallels with the later Soviet and, and Russian systems. So, in the fourteen, fifteen hundreds, around this era, we have the rise of Muscovy or, or Moscow. You know how how did this power rise to power, uh, and what happens with this?
1: Well, it was really it was the Mongol invasion which interrupted things and shoot things up a little bit because um, the Mongol occupation. Of Rus happened um, basically for about just over two hundred years, from twelve forty to fourteen eighty. Now, the Mongols didn't really interfere in the internal workings of uh, what was happening in in Ru- Rus. They just wanted to um, cl- collect taxes and um, be sure that the territories were subjugated. They weren't all occupied, and that's the reason why, also, why we have Ukraine and Belarus today, because. Um, parts of which are now russia fell more under the mongol influence while the western parts now ukraine belarus they um, fell under the more western influence of poland and uh, L- lithuania um but um what happened was um so kiev it, it, kiev declined um uh, even even before that and there were other um, cities emerged like vladimir and suzdal and um there's like an allied and analogy of a forest where you've got the big trees and they don't let the other trees grow because they cover them with shade. This is what it was a bit like with these big towns. Uh, So the Mongols came, they chopped down the big trees and that let the sort of smaller um, shrubs grow grow themselves into uh, bigger trees. Places like Moscow or Tver, Tver. Which were uh, hidden by forests. They were also um, subjected to. They were also um, destroyed at various times by the Mongols. But because they were left alone, more in um, slightly quieter, forested areas, they were able to emerge themselves and grow um, during this time of the the Mongol um, occupation, the Mongol yoke, as it as it's known in Russian history, and. Um, Moscow grew specifically simply because of the character and nature of its princes. Um, Now, they were actually, Moscow was very cunning. Uh, On the one hand, it uh, collaborated with the Mongols, for example, um, the Grand Prince of Moscow, Ivan Kalita, he became the main tax collector for the whole of Rus'. So he collected all the taxes. And then handed the money over to the Mongols. Obviously, that made him a very, very rich man. And he also um, helped to put down anti-Mongol rebellions, which which happened um, in in the territory of Rus, for example, in the neighbouring principality of Tver, which um, got him into. Of course, that was got him in the good books of the Mongols, and it also had uh, the benefit of helping to put down a potential neighbouring rival. So. And on the other hand, um, the Moscow had positioned itself as um, kind of like the, the, the spiritual head of the Russian people. The metropolitan, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, moved um, to Moscow in 1325, so it became the seat of um, like sp- spiritual power. Also, um, there was uh, Dmitry Donskoy, another prince of Moscow, and um, he led um, the Russian forces at the Battle of Kulikovo, which was the first time when the Russians stood up to the Mongols and gave them a bloody nose. He didn't chase them out the, uh, because the Mongol yoke continued for about another hundred years, but um, so this did position kind of like Moscow as both using both sword. And diplomacy to kind of emerge as the leading power in Rus, and all this time, they were copying the Mongols because they introduced, for example, things which had not existed before um, before the Mongol invasion in Rus, like the segregation of women, uh, capital and corporal punishment, and um, so when the Mongols finally went away, because first of all the Mongol Empire split up into four parts. And the western part, the Golden Horde, which controlled uh Rus or Russia as the name became increasingly Europeanized, um it the Golden Horde itself began to weaken. And eventually in 1480, after another battle or rather a standoff uh, between Mongol and Russian troops, the the Russians decided that we aren't going to pay any more um uh, t- tribute to you. And so you had um Russia independent again but this time it wasn't Kievan Rus it was Muscovite Rus with with Moscow at the at the head control controlling everything
0: and it's it's really fascinating to see the different power dynamics in there and and those different methods that Moscow was able to utilize to come out on top uh in that particular region now I, I want to zoom forward uh, a couple of hundred years to so 1613 uh, and there's a name here that people might recognize and it's Michael Romanoff um, and he becomes Tsar in this year how important is this moment in 1613 where Michael becomes Tsar?
1: Well it's very important um, a lot of the he becomes Tsar, and a lot of the arguments used against for example having a royal family for example in our country it can be said that or oh, if they're only king or queen because their ancestors robbed our ancestors. And um, without even going into, into the wrongs or rights of that argument, this is one argument that could not be used against the Romanov dynasty, because although they're second only to the Bolsheviks in my book just getting a bad rap as enemies of democracy, they were actually democratically elected in 1613. What happened was, before then, Russia had gone through a period of great turmoil, known as the Time of Troubles, when the dynasty, which is straight back, stretched back to the time of um, Rurik, ended shortly after uh, Ivan the Terrible died. Then there was a um, great period of turmoil, pretenders, and finally the Russian people so- sorted out everything themselves by setting up their own Democracy called the Council of the Land and expelling all the foreign invaders, Poles and um, also Swedes from the country. So the people righted themselves and sort of restored the Russian state in 1612. um, But instead of, and they'd already set up their own, by that time, set up their own functioning government. But instead of keeping power to themselves, they wanted to go back to having a Tsar because they felt that the problems had begun when they tried actually um, having an elected Tsar, Boris Godunov, and it was as if that went against the the laws of God. So they wanted to get back to um, how things had been before this time of troubles. And so they held an election um, for a new Tsar, and their choice was uh, Michael Romanov, who actually, um, the irony is that he actually, he didn't stand for election himself. Um, he was just chosen as a compromise candidate because he was both Russian, and he was also linked to the previous, um, the the very first dynasty, um, uh, through um, Ivan the Terrible's uh, first wife, um, Anastasia Romanova. And, um, however, maybe the problem that the people made when they when he was elected in sixteen thirteen was that there were no conditions set to his reign. So um, after him, his son Alexis, um, when he died in 1645, his son Alexis also became Tsar. And as far as we know, um, as part of his um, election, there were no. he wasn't made to sign any actual conditions which would place limitations on his power. Pos- it might have happened, but um, they're only second-hand or thirdhand Accounts of this, it, it, um, if there were, it, it wasn't documented. So um, people elect a, a new dynasty; it's an elected dynasty, but um, it's it is a, also at the same time a return to the um, to the times of the Muscovite, the o- o- autocratic um, princes, or as it now became known, Tsar and eventually Emperor.
0: It, it seems to me that a lot of the Issues with the powers of the czars and the emperors stem from those lack of conditions imposed on, on Michael Romanov. Now he has two very very interesting descendants who I want to I want to talk about now, and they are the startingly startingly start. Oh, I'm not even going to try and say that word. The two very different um, emperors of Alexander the Second and Alexander the Third. I want I want to kind of. Look at a different topic that we don't quite look at with these these two. You know, what was their relationship with democracy like?
1: Yes, you're correct. And um, they're very different, although father and son. So, um, Alexander II came to power during the Crimean War when his own father Nicholas I um, died. Now, Nicholas I was very reactionary. And um, the Crimean War was really the result of all these reactionary uh, policies when Russia was seen not to be able to even conduct a war in its own, um, um, in in its own lands in Crimea. So um, Alexander II, on assuming power, he understood things had to change very uh, radically, and um, he was supported by members of his family, his brother Constantine, his aunt, who was German, and he immediately embarked on a period of reforms. Most importantly of all, he was the emancipation of the serfs in 1861, but he also carried out um, judicial and army reforms, which proved to be very good reforms, as shown when the Russian army had successes against the Ottoman Empire in the 1870s. Being liberal, it was not quite the same as being A Democrat is believing in democracy because um, Alexander II was very similar to a lot of liberals at that time in the late 19th century. He believed that, yes, you could be liberal yourself, but um, it didn't mean giving power to all the people. Because remember at that time, Russia, 90% of the population uh, were serfs or former serfs, um, mostly illiterate. And so he didn't want to give power to... um, to all the people because then it would just be the illiterate population might lose their power just to whoever was c- cunning in in parliament for the for example in members of the aristocracy or the middle classes and um, so he put off giving them um for example a parliament even though by this time russia was following falling behind not just all the countries in europe like germany austria which also had parliaments but um, even countries like uh, Japan or the Ottoman Empire, who also had um, started a parliament. Um, but two things changed. Um, in, actually, in the year 1880, first of all, there was a terrorist attempt on, on his life, um, and um, a terrorist managed to get into the Winter Palace, place a bomb under his dining room, and um, the whole family would have been um Killed when the bomb went off. Except the empress's brother was visiting them from Germany. His train was late, and so they sat down uh, fifteen minutes late for for lunch, and that's what saved them. Um, and so um, he appointed a commission to look at how to deal with the, this terrorist threat. And uh, one of his ministers, Loris Melikov, said um, the to publish is to give power to the people to publish a, a constitution. Um, at the same time, um, shortly after that, um, the Empress, his wife, died. Now Alexander already had a second family um, with a woman, Catherine Dolgorukova, and um who'd already given birth to his children. And after the straight after the period of mourning, he um, he married her. This um, it was a morganatic marriage, but he wanted to make her empress and really and retire to live in the south of France with her. So he planned what he planned to do was um, later in 1881. What he simultaneously he would announce that uh, Catherine would be um, crowned empress, and at the same time he would grant a constitution to the people. And on the very day, first of March 1881. When um, he signed off the constitutional project and uh, his new wife, Catherine, she even said to him, "Uh, I'm so happy about this and can I have the pen which you signed the document? It gives me greater pleasure to have a constitution than knowing that crown will be placed on my head. Although it's whether that that was was true or not, it's another matter. And then later that day, he went out in his carriage and he was blown up um, and killed and uh, um, blown up by terrorists uh, and brought back to the Winter Palace in several pieces where, where he, he died. Now, he was, um, um he actually, and he, now his son, now Alexander III, took over and he was the complete opposite. And he wasn't actually... Brought up to be the heir because he had had an elder brother, uh, Nicholas, who died of consumption. And so he was the second son. And um, he was um, completely opposed to democracy. Um he was very much a pro Russian, a Russian nationalist, um, which is, although he himself was, his mother was German, his father was half German. And um, when, so he fired all the, he sacked all the. All the previous Tsars, uh, liberal ministers, wouldn't have anything to do with um, democracy. Although, as I said, there was, for example, there was a suggestion maybe his coronation call uh, a sort of um, Zemsky Sabor, an assembly of the land, which had been a, a sort of another old Russian parliament. But he he wasn't having any of it. And although by this time, of course, this is the end of the nineteenth century, and he himself was married. He was the only Romanov. Tsar, who actually um a member of a, a representative of a constitutional democracy, his wife was Danish, uh, Princess Dagmar, and she tried to influence him. It was mainly her father, King Christian IX of Denmark, tried to get her to influence Alexander to maybe not have a, um, at least have a, not, not have a parliament, but at least maybe have a consultative organ, but he wasn't having, um, Any of it, and so um, when by the time Russia reaches the twentieth century and it's more or less frozen in time, there have been no, um, uh, there's no democratic accountability, and all classes of society—liberals, workers, peasants—are wanting a share of power, but uh, they're not being given it by the autocratic tsar.
0: They're both so fascinating in the respective how different they are and their different approaches. And I think you can definitely see some of those reflections in their characters in the future. But I also want to talk about probably one of Alexander III's biggest failings. Um, And it might be unfair to say, but it's his son, Nicholas II. Uh, So Nicholas flirts with democracy in, in 1906. And you describe Russia under Nicholas as undergoing a transformation from an unlimited autocracy to an autocracy. So how and why did this process emerge and what what role does the the Duma play in all of this?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, if there was a flirtation with democracy, it was a completely forced flirtation because Nicholas II, um, he was also an anachronism. Um, he was like his father. Um, he didn't, he, even though all his r- relatives were members of um, Western constitutional democracies, he didn't want to grant any... Um, any power to his own people, but he was unable to um, to st- stand up just to the pressures of time because um, what happened was things came to a head in 1904 and 1905 when you'd the disastrous Russian showing in the Russo-Japanese War, um, then you'd bloody Sunday in January 1905 when Workers going to the palace were shot down, causing outrage across the whole country. And basically, throughout the whole of nineteen o five, Russia was in the throes of revolution. And Nicholas was was a prisoner in his own palace, basically. So the only way that um, he could uh, quell the rebellion was by granting concessions. He could have become a military dictator, but he didn't have it in him to be be this. And um. His relatives weren't going to do that for him. So he's forced to sign the October Manifesto, which grants wide-ranging civil rights to um, the population, and also grants and um, creates a parliament called the Duma. Um, actually, the it comes from the Russian verb Duma which means to think, and it's from the same root as our own verb, to doom, meaning to pass ju- judge or just pass judgment on, because this was what um, Nicholas hoped they would just pass judgment on, but they wouldn't actually start in um, making laws themselves. But this was actually what happened, because now it wasn't, he didn't give the vote to everyone, it was limited to just only men over the age of 25 and this was only around about um, 15% of the population. And it was weighted in favour of landowners and uh, house owners against workers and peasants. Nevertheless, when um, elections were held in 1906, um, this, the Duma was very radical. And it was so radical that um, Nicholas um, ended up shutting it down after it had only passed one law. A second Duma was elected in 1907. This was even more radical and even more um extremist because it had um um extremists both on the left and on the far right as well. Um it was shut down also um after um just actually really after 103 days after it only passed three acts and then nicholas changed the voting law illegally to make it even harder to um get um radical deputies elected Although, on the other hand, this was quite good because what Russia needed was a period of um, evolution to slowly just get used to the workings of democracy. And the third and the fourth Duma's, um, which were both elect- elected um, for um, five years, they, um, they 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 operated for the full five years. And they worked, although they were more conservative, and this meant that, um, again, there was a little bit of this led to popular apathy, um, because it wasn't so representative of the people, it did start working constructively with the Tsarist government to pass good laws, for example, on um, agriculture, on education, um, and things might have gone all right w- working um, uh, without any problems, but um, and so- slowly evolving into a, a good relationship between the legislative and the executive. But, um, Two things happened. In 1911, the prime minister, Stalipin, was assassinated. Now, he'd been getting on very well with the Duma. And um, then also in 1911, the scandal of Rasputin started to emerge. And the Duma it held its own inquiry into who, who was this person, why is he allowed access to the emperor. And um, this put, set them against um, Nicholas II, who objected to them, as he called, interfering in his private life. Um, so the Fourth Duma, it was quite conservative, although it was beginning to move into opposition in 1914 against the Emperor. And there was a there was a case in 1914, March 1914, which was a little bit like what happened in England in 1641 under Charles I, when Charles I came down to Parliament, tried to arrest um five MPs, but they all, the, the Speaker and the whole of the House of Commons stood up against him, leading to the, the civil war, um, and what happened was, was that the leader of the Mensheviks gave a speech um, calling for a republic, Um now the government tried to prosecute him for this, but the case was dropped after all All parties, even though they weren't Republicans in the Duma, supported him and passed a vote of no confidence in the Minister of the Interior. So this was like the beginnings of um, Parliament maybe trying to um, take its stand against the Tsar, act as one body. But then 1914, later in that year, um, you have the First World War and uh, the Duma, it passed the... Patriotically passed the government budget and then it dissolved itself in for another year and basically gave all executive power into the for now until 1915 into the hands of the Tsar.
0: It's it's really interesting, like you, you know, drawing those parallels between what's happening under Charles the and, and what's happening under Nicholas and how that Duma, despite interference, kind of sets itself up in opposition to Nicholas, who you know was a deeply Unpopular figure at points and, and how that leads to the, the collapse of, of czarism in uh, Russia. Now, I think that's a great time for us to take our ad break uh, just so you can hear some message from our supporters. And me and Kenneth will be back to discuss Russia after the fall of Tsarism. Now, I am a massive history nut, hence why I have a podcast, hence why I learn so much about history outside of History of Jackson. And One place that I go to, and I really think you should go to as well, is to one of the sponsors of this show, which is the Past Podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now, Past is the podcast about those who would never rule, which I think is an amazing concept, you know, learning about these people who we don't often talk about in history. And if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France, or, you know why the Hundred Years' War started, then this is the show for you. Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule. And I really think you're going to enjoy the Past podcast, and that's Past, P-A-S-S-E-D, the Past podcast with Veronica Fortune. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Go check it out. Now, here at History of Jackson, I absolutely love finding new places to access historical content. And I know that you need some more historical content to look and read. I also know that some of you are writers, you're looking to start your historical content creator journeys. And for me, one of the best places to start this is the HistoryCorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. Now this is a great hub for creative people to begin their historical content creation journey. And it's a fantastic place for those who are interested in living history or photography to use to begin different methods of collaboration. This is a great place for everyone who's interested in history or involved in history. So that is the HistoryCorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. Go check it out. So thank you for staying with us after our ad break. And now we are back to talking to Kenneth about Russia post czarism So Kenneth, in 1917, 1918, we have a we have a couple of difficult years um for Russia. We have a a series of revolutions, we have the introduction of democracy, and then the rise of the Bolsheviks. Can can in in a way that people can understand and touch on key points, can we kind of break down these two years because they are so hectic and crazy?
1: Yes, they were hectic, crazy, and as you say, difficult. On the other hand, they were good years in terms of, or the start was in terms of democracy. So so I would even describe it, yes, difficult, but like the birth pangs, just was a birth is difficult and very painful, but uh, gives birth to, you know, to a baby to something good, um, which unfortunately just wasn't allowed to continue. So very spontaneously in February 1917, um, just there, um people are tar- tired of the war and um, into um third year of the war people are tired of their factory strikes um workers are locked out on the streets it's cold it's um there's um, a temporary problem with the bread um distribution and uh, really discontent um just boils over in the queues and this might not have been anything particular except that the Cossacks who were sent to disperse the crowds, they refused to obey orders and they went over to the crowds. And basically the regime just collapsed. SARS regime uh, just basically collapsed. Disso- um, country dissolved into anarchy. So there was a power vacuum. So as but as one, fortunately, we had the Duma already in existence. And so as one. One deputy, a man, Vasily Shulgin, said to to the chairman of the Duma, Bronzianko, take power, because if you don't take power, others will. So the Duma um, appointed a provisional government, um, which its aim was to prepare the country for elections later that year to a constituent assembly, which would take all the decisions. Um, uh, Just like in France after the revolution, or America after the revolution when they had constituted, constituent assemblies. This was to be the same in Russia. Um, The only problem was that while they passed very free electoral laws, they immediately gave the vote to everyone, men, women, everyone over the age of of 20, everyone in the armed forces. So if you were 16 or 18 in the armed forces, you also had the vote. Um, Complete democracy. But the problem was they took too long to hold these elections. You really need to hold them very quickly after a revolution. Um, but they waited until November um, 1917 to actually hold the elections. And the problem was in October, month before that, uh, the Bolsheviks had seized power themselves in the capital of Petrograd. Now, the elections still went ahead and they were very democratic and we know they were democratic because the Bolsheviks didn't win the elections Bolsheviks came second on about 22%. The winning party on about 40% was the socialist revolutionaries who um, who represented the peasants the countryside. The Bolsheviks um, represented first of all the army and uh, so- soldiers and also the workers. Um, now when this um, so, when this parliament eventually met on the 5th of January 1918, it was at loggerheads with the Bolshevik um, would be government. And um, it was only allowed to meet for one day, after which the Bolsheviks um, dispersed it um, by force of arms and it never met again. And so the country descended into civil war. It began to break up. And as I said, you had so you now had the Bolsheviks. In power. Now they had they replaced. Um, so instead of the Constituent Assembly, they said, "Now what was going to govern the country is the Soviets, also um, wor- wor- worker, soldiers, and peasant councils, where they had a majority." Now, this would have been quite possible in Russia. There wouldn't have been anything wrong with that because the Soviets were democratically elected, only not from the middle and upper classes, but though they were in a minority in the country anyway. But the problem was that there were a array of parties, the socialist revolutionaries, the Mensheviks, moderate socialists, who were also represented in the Soviets, and the Bolsheviks didn't want that at all. So very quickly, within six months of their own revolution in October 1917, they in the summer of 1918, they banned, they expelled all the other socialist parties from the Soviets, and um, um, also they'd been in a coalition government with very left-leading socialist revolutionaries. They got rid of them, and so they either hunted down Uh, prominent politicians, um, there's Red Terror, using Red Terror, or they just, um, as I say, just banned the parties. So already by the middle of 1918, instead of the supposed uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, which the Bolsheviks had pronounced, you've already got the dictatorship of the one communist party. And even inside the communist party, there was less and less democracy um, as time went on in 1921, Lenin banned factions there, and uh, also there was a rise, very quickly there was a rise of a new bureaucratic elite in this r- ruling political party.
0: So you can really see, you know, across those two years the kind of collapse of what, what was developing into quite a accessible and open democracy into what would later become totalitarianism. Under Stalin, and you know we we see with with Stalin the complete antithesis to democracy, um, with his strongman single man rule, although albeit with that Politburo and that bureaucratic class assisting him. And in 1953, after years of terror from both himself and Lenin, um, Stalin dies, and his successor is Khrushchev. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev has a very, very different approach to to both Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin. How did he seek to implement democratic practices after such a intense totalitarian rule?
1: Yes, well, Khrushchev um, did it. He did it in a rather harebrained and haphazard, piecemeal manner, which is um, how he did approached everything, which eventually led to his own overthrow in 1964. Um, what he did was maybe a little bit like gorbachev, it was part of his own political plan because obviously he had to um uh um show that he was against the previous um um the old guard the stalinists and so he did this by um, criticizing first of all nineteen fifty six at the twentieth party congress he criticized stalin for his crimes against party members then the next um twenty second co- congress in nineteen sixty one He um, extended that criticism to Stalin's crimes against the whole um, Soviet people. Um, And at the same time, he did try to introduce a lot of democratic changes in a way that even Gorbachev didn't plan at first. For a start in 1956, he even tried, um, it was a very small experiment, um, when there was voting for just um, very minor party posts, he decided to, um, instead of having Fifty-seven people going for fifty-seven posts, and um, just uh, the electorate just um, having to say yes um, to, to the list, which was always always elected. Even if a couple of people said no. He he made more people on the list than there were actually posts. Introduced a little bit of competition, Um although this was a disaster because um, quite um, like district party heads they were the ones who, who who missed out and so um they quickly put a stop to um this experiment and ironically um it was in the sort of ongoing march towards communism that led to Khrushchev thinking about democracy because um initially the bolsheviks it was the dictatorship of the proletariat was the official ideology but um by the 1950s um you had Socialism established by the 1930s, and um, this um, yeah, and um, the so the USSR was already thinking about how it was going to Im- implement actual communism, which was supposed to happen by the year they calculated by the year 1980. And but Marx had hadn't provided any blueprint as to what communists looked like. Khrushov he envisaged to be something like. Um, all you can eat buffets that um, existed in capitalist countries, combined with democracy, and at the same time, he, he started talking about democracy more and more because um, he pointed out how, in um, he visited America, and he pointed out how American presidents are limited to just two terms, uh, whereas with us, it's only when people die they they, they leave office, and um, so very on and off. This it wasn't. Um, any very consistent, but um, as time went on, um, in 1964, he visited um Scandinavia, and the Scandinavian democracy seems to have impressed him quite a lot because um, when he was there, he was I actually even overheard um talking about a plan to maybe split the one communist party into two parties, one for the workers, one for the peasants. Now, um, this was no. The Soviet Union was a one-party state, but in, for example, countries like East Germany, China today, North Korea, they're not actually one-party states. There are other parties, but just they're not. Uh, they're never going to be real opposition. But if Khrushchev had done this in the Soviet Union, there was um, workers and peasants, and um, there was a sort of um, a dichotomy. The 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 two classes were slightly at, at odds, mainly over economic issues, and. Um, Mainly due to having a command economy, and uh, because even a command economy has to decide how its resources are um, um, a- allocated, and there was a t- tension between workers and peasants when Khrushchev tried to help the peasants by putting up uh, food prices in 1962. There was a um, there was outrage across the country, and there was even a, a, a very small uprising in Novocherkassk in 1962, which was put down very brutally. Um, and so when Khrushchev came back to the uh, Soviet Union after a Scandinavian visit in 1964. Um he said he announced that he was planning um uh, to write a new constitution. And he'd already set up a constitutional uh, committee, and which they um there'd been various ideas floated, such as a, a two chamber parliament, um multi-candidate elections, um reducing the time when people could serve, um and um no one really knew what, and then he, he, he then he would put this to the electorate in a referendum, which is, you just don't do it in a totalitarian state. Um, so he went off on, on holiday to the Crimea, rather like uh, Gorbachev later in the 19, 1991. And when he was there, he was called back by Brezhnev back to Moscow um, on say, v- v- ur- urgent business. And there, at a meeting of the Presidium of the Central Committee, he was removed. From power, however, he was removed democratically, and I think he was about the only second person in the whole of Russian history to be removed from power and then actually to live out his, his days and not, not die uh, a gr- gruesome death.
0: It's yeah, for someone to implement these changes after Stalin and all the terror that he he had gone about doing. You know, it's in, it's an incredible amount of change for Russia to try and get through, and, and Khrushchev to try and push through. And you know, you meant you mentioned someone within um telling us about Khrushchev. And that and that's Gorbachev. Now I, I wanna mm-hmm. I wanna touch on and Gorbachev and Gorbachev's successor, Boris Yeltsin, a bit more, because mm-hmm. you know th- there are some certainly there certainly are some parallels between Khrushchev and-, and Gorbachev. Um and Gorbachev and Yeltsin are an incredibly interesting duo in terms of their relationship with democracy and in terms of what happens to Russia under the two of them. Would you mind unpacking their relationship and, and, and what happens between the two of them in regards to the overall picture uh, of Russia?
1: Mm. Yes, and you're correct to say that Brasov um, was very um, important to Gorbachev because Gorbachev knew that Brasov uh, had been overthrown in 1964 by his own party, and that guided a lot of, actually, what he did. Now, um, Gorbachev came to power in 1985. He was a completely orthodox communist. He'd shown no signs of wanting to embark on any reforms. And if he had, he wouldn't have been appointed to the post of general secretary, because although there was no democracy in the Soviet Union, even you still had to to become general secretary, you still had to be elected in the Politburo. Now, Gorbachev started out... um, he realized that things had to change, that the Soviet Union, was the economy was not in a very good place and it was having to compete with uh, Reagan's United States, which had embarked on the Star Wars program. And so he thought, um, well, he needs to change things a little bit and update the Soviet economy and mechanize it, introduce maybe robotization, computerization. But that was all. He said the Soviet system itself would make things happen because he truly believed in communism problem was um, these reforms had no um, effect at all. The real reason was because um, oil prices were falling at that time, hitting the Soviet economy very hard. They'd stayed afloat in the 70s from high oil prices, and now they suffered from low oil prices in the 1980s. But Gorbachev believed that he was facing sabotage from inside his party. And so what he thought he needed to do was to um, rely on forces outside the party, meaning the people, And he would only do so by bringing them into politics and really um, so by having more democracy, giving them a share of power. At the same time, there was um, um, the Chernobyl disaster in 1986, which had all been covered up. And Gorbachev also saw that we also suffer from this lack of openness. So we need openness as well. We need to tell the truth about everything. Again, uh, democracy. But the only problem was trying to do this in a, former in a totalitarian state, maybe it, it, it just doesn't work. So at first, Gorbachev thought he was going back to the time of Lenin with the Soviets um, and just not having alternative political parties, but just having more competition. Um, so he tried a small experiment in 1988, which um, seemed to work um, with like the elections that Khrushchev uh, tried in 1956 were, were abandoned. So just local elections with m- multiple candidates seemed to be a great success. And so the following year, 1989, um, what they did, they passed a law on free elections. And so instead of the old Supreme Soviet, now they elected a new, um, a whole new parliament called um, Congress of People's Deputies, which was democratically or maybe at that time just um like a transitional semi-democratically elected basically um the soviet union was now a parliamentary democracy so all this happening under Gorbachev and as I say he was um he was a politician and by providing this alternative power base and he also the new congress elected him as um president of the USSR, this gave him another title. So even if he was um, removed as head of the party, he could still stay on as president of the USSR. Um, and then at the same time, we've got Boris Yeltsin, who was interestingly in um, going back to Novgorod when Novgorod was invaded by Moscow in 1478. Many of it, the people of Novgorod uh, fled to to Siberia, which was also controlled by Novgorod. And this is one of the ancestors of Yeltsin did that. And um, so Yeltsin was descended from one of those original uh, people from Novgorod. Um, He was also not, he he was the party head in Sverdlovsk in the Urals, Um, he was also a seemingly orthodox communist, but he was brought into Moscow by Gorbachev, uh, as part of Gorbachev's new new team, and he quickly identified very much with um, Glasnost and Perestroika, and he came into conflict with Gorbachev because he felt Gorbachev was not doing enough. Now, at the same time, Yeltsin's also a politician, and he's also plotting to come to power himself, and he sees a chance for an alternative power base, not just in, not so much in the Union Center, which is controlled by Gorbachev, but in the Russian Republic itself, because as part of Gorbachev's reforms, you have a um, more devolution of power. And in 1990, after 1989, you had the first uh, congress for the whole of the Soviet Union. In 1990, you had in um, the 15 republics also democratically elected their own um, congresses, their own parliaments. And the problem was now um Multiple parties were uh, allowed, and in places in the Baltic countries, they elected separatist parties who immediately declared re independence. And in Russia, um, uh, Yel- Yeltsin and Democrats came to power, and uh, Yeltsin saw that uh, if he could, you he could use Russia as his power base in his political battle against. Gorbachev, and this came to a head in 1991 August. The coup, which um, temporarily hardliners temporarily overthrew Gorbachev, and it was the Russian democratic officials who stood up to the coup. Yeltsin standing standing on a tank, and also supported by the Russian Parliament. And um, so, after the coup was defeated, um, Gorbachev actually faced a second coup that year in, in December 1991 when. Gorbachev went behind. Um, Yeltsin went behind his back. Met, met with the leaders uh, Shushkevich of Biel, Russia and Pushma of Ukraine, and set up their own um, independent, um, uh, separate um, um, fed- fed- federation, which made, met, which meant that the USSR was over, was no more. And, she, and that's the I remember on the news bulletin that night. That was how they announced the the, the headline news: the USSR is no more, no more.
0: And it's incredibly interesting, you know, how the, the dynamic between these two men and, and their relationship with people from the past leads to the collapse of Russia. Uh, and Yeltsin certainly comes across as a very powerful and authoritative figure. You know, you, you kind of have to be to, to stand on a tank, don't you? But, you know, I, I want to I look further on, you know, Yeltsin becomes president. He oversees and looks through the birth of a new democracy in Russia and his pu- his successor Vladimir putin uh kind of comes to the fray in the late nineteen hundreds and takes over in around two thousand now coming from relatively or relative obscurity you know how does how does Vladimir Putin get to the point of being the successor, and then how does his presidency begin
1: yeah so it's really just circumstances worked in such a way that uh vladimir putin um came to power. Um, the problem was with, with. Yeltsin's uh, corruption or rather the corruption of his family in his second term in the late 1990s meant that Yeltsin had to be sure that the next president um, would give him guarantees that he would not be jail- jailed on, um, or, or or, in any case put on trial for um, his family's corruption. And that he tried out various prime ministers and the one who seems to have given the answer that he wanted to hear was this man called Vladimir Putin, whom he appointed um, prime minister in August 1999, and um, incidentally, I remember it was um, it was just two days after the eclipse, which um, many people said it was the it, it was going to bring in the end of the world, and we'll still see see if that um, will happen. And yeah, as you say, I mean, Putin. We know that um, his first career, his first calling, was in the KGB. Um, and um, he'd been an operative in Leningrad and then in Dresden in East Germany, which ended when East Germany had its democratic revolution and then he'd had to return to Leningrad. And then he affixed himself to the liberal, but actually quite um, corrupt uh, mayor of Le- Leningrad, then, then St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, And uh, he was his vice mayor in St. Petersburg in, in the first half of the 1990s. Um, then, when Sobchak lost his election, actually, in a large part, Putin was his electoral agent, and in a large part, due, due to um, uh, some part, due to Putin's own e- efforts. Not meaning, I didn't mean that Putin was undermining him, more Putin's incompetence in, in, in being part of his electoral team. To um, so when the mayor Subchak lost his job in 1996, Putin was the only member of his team that didn't go to join the new mayor. He went off to m- Moscow and he got various administrative posts there in, in the Kremlin, and he did prove his loyalty. When um, Subchak was going to be arrested on corruption charges, uh, Putin helped him to get him out of the country to France. Um, Putin also helped when Yeltsin also faced prosecution during his time as president. This was how democratic Russia was, and um, uh, um, again for corruption in the the uh, Kremlin, Kremlin. The uh, reconstruction program. Um, they set up. What happened was in. Um, uh, the Prosecutor General was set up, and a uh, um, tape was shown on late night TV because you couldn't show it to children of um, someone who looked like the uh, Prosecutor General in company of prostitutes. And Putin, at that time, he'd been appointed head of the uh, secure- the FSB, the security services. He, he said, "Yes, this video cassette is real and uh, authenticated." It. So Putin, uh, so Yeltsin was able to sack him, and so. Um, In 1999, um, Putin is unveiled by Yeltsin as um, his heir successor. Now, just because Yeltsin said this, it was no guarantee that Putin would be elected president. He'd never stood for election himself before. But in the second half of 1999, um, several things happened. Um, The war in Chechnya started up again uh, when Chechnya invaded Dagestan. At the same time, in cities um, across Russia, there were um, bombings of apartments said to be done by um, Chechen terrorists. Um, There's still, there's lots of um, It's hard to say one way or the other that claims if it was the Russian security services behind that or not. That's a separate topic. In whatever the case, Putin's ratings started to rise as he presented himself as a, of a sort of strong man that would protect vulnerable Russians. And then finally, um, the elections weren't supposed to be held until summer of tw- 2000, um, but Yeltsin resigned on Hugmany 1999, bringing forward the elections by three months to March, the year 2000. And actually in December 1999, he just had a general election campaign, so all the other candidates had exhausted themselves financially and also physically. Um, So this uh, helped Putin. And he also used um, techniques which had been used for the first time to get Yeltsin re-elected in 1996. The media spin, um, illicit funding uh, to get Putin over the line uh, as as president in March 2000. And although he said that he would continue the Yeltsin line in democracy, he immediately set about dismantling. Democracy. Um, the as I said, the media was very free at that time. I um, eight days after his election, um, the head of one of the media companies, um, Vladimir Plushinsky, who had the NTV, very anti-Kremlin, uh, he he was arrested. Um, there were other crackdowns on the media. Um, the parliament, the lower parliament, the Duma, already had a, basically had a sort of fake party which supported Putin, which had. Uh, Come to power following the December nineteen ninety nine elections, there was there was also an upper house, um, but um, Putin also tamed that by reducing their privileges um, and also threatening the senators with uh, corruption. Um, he also tamed the oligarchs. Now, in a way, the. Oligarchs who'd um, become very rich during the privatization campaigns of the nineteen nineties, they did need taming because they'd actually brought down a reformist government uh, of Yeltsin in nineteen ninety seven. But um, the thing was, um, and so they, they were like a bad influence on democracy. So they did need taming. But um, what they, they weren't replaced by anyone. They were just told to keep out of. Um, they weren't replaced by the people. And um, um, Putin was sure. Um, he made sure to control everything that was happening in the in 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 political life in Russia so even by the end of his very first year in um, in power year 2000 what was quite telltale was by the at the end of the year he changed the he reinstated there's a very symbolic act reinstated the Soviet national anthem as the national anthem of Russia, which had been removed by Yeltsin, and so you actually saw on t v rush um, Yeltsin greeting the New Year, having to listen to the anthem of this totalitarian state which he thought he'd buried, but which was back again, and that's basically where we are, where we are today
0: more than anything like like you just mentioned, I think that that reinstate not reinstating of that anthem kind of does encapsulate where Russia went after that, after the year 2000, you know, that strengthening of strongman rule, uh, the aversion to democracy. And it's, it's really interesting to see these cycles of history uh, repeat Absolutely. Across, across Russian history. Now, I have a final fun question for you, as we do mm-hmm. for all our guests here on the History of Jackson podcast. You bring a lot of stories about failed republics and democracies within mm-hmm. Russia into your book. Um, which single one is your favourite and why?
1: It's a very hard um, question to answer because there were so many and so different. There was one that I liked particularly, um, which emerged in the far east of Russia in 1919 in the chaos of the Civil War, um, because it was both it was very representative, its fate was very representative of the, of the fall of democracy in general in Russia, and it was also very interesting and original in its own right. Now, it happened in Buryatia, which is actually a Buddhist uh, part of um, Russia, very close to Mongolia, and it was called the Kudun State. It was a set up, it was a a Buddhist theocracy, but it also had elements of um, a constitutional democracy and Western republicanism. So it was almost like a mixture of Tibet and, you know, the United States of of America. And it gave... um, it was And it was ahead of its time because ahead of like the leading democracies of the world, because, for example, it gave the vote to everyone over the age of fifteen now this is nineteen nineteen boys girls, men, women. now, if you look at Britain at that time nineteen eighteen only some women double that age over the age of thirty could get the vote, vote, vote in Britain, and they also had very interesting policies, such as for example, the salaries of all public officials, including members of parliament, were set by the electorate. And you think that'd be a very uh, interesting policy to have today. And um, also, but the way it ended was, as I said, it was quite representative because this was during the Civil War. First of all, the problem was that it didn't have, it was a, it was a Buddhist state, it was a pacifist state, so it had everything that a modern state should have, but it didn't have an army because it was pacifist. And so, it went through the same problem, like for example, the Constituent Assembly in 1918, which wasn't able to stand up to the Bolsheviks using force of arms. It this lack of an army led to its its demise. So first of all, it was overthrown by the invading White forces, and then after then the Whites were in, um, were then were defeated by the Reds, who also imprisoned the the, the head of, head of state, uh, the B- Buddhist, and so. And people think of the Russian Civil War as a battle between just the Reds and the Whites, but there's actually a third element. There were the Democrats, supporters of democracy, and both the Whites and the Reds were enemies of democracy. None of them wanted dem- democracy. So in a way, this whole state, it was quite um, representative. Um, but yes, all these all these very small states, I find it all very, all these small republics, democracies, which were set up by the people themselves over Russian history, I find it very... And just to finish off, you mentioned Russian history going in cycles there. That actually reminds me, there's also one very small, it was a peasant republic set up in 1905 during the 1905 um, revolution um, in the village of Staribuyan near the city of Samara. And it set up a a direct democracy known as the Staribuyan Republic and it had a, a five article constitution and it only lasted 13 days. And after it was overthrown by the Tsarist forces, one of the peasants said, our People's Republic lasted only 13 days. For 13 days, the sun shone, but then it disappeared again behind the impenetrable clouds of the autocratic regime. And in a way, that's almost like an epithet for the story of democracy in Russia. Maybe 13 days, just for a very short period, the sun shines very brightly, but then it goes behind the clouds again.
0: I certainly found both of those republics when I was reading your book incredibly interesting, especially the Buddhist one, which I thought was just so fascinating in terms of how it was set up and its different procedures in its democracy as well. Now, as always, people are going to want to read your book. It's incredibly informative of the current political climate. Um, It can help inform people of the different historical contexts for the conflict that's currently happening in, in Ukraine. And it can help people contextualise some of the rhetoric coming from Putin and Russia uh, regarding the conflict. So where can people find your book?
1: Yeah, I would say um, in all good bookshops. uh, um, uh, Blackwell's Waterstones and also other independent bookshops. Um, Also, you can always get it from my publisher, Amberley. Um, I also think it's amberley published very good books on history and i think they give a discount if you spend more than a hundred pounds you get free postage and books sometimes on on special offer with amberley so if you go to their website you can definitely get it there and just all other book selling websites and i would just if you want to buy online just uh look around to see where you can get the best price
0: yeah and I, i certainly want to to thank Amberley for sending me a copy of your book uh, it's been really great to read it and I have seen your book in, in Waterstones as well so I encourage anyone to head across to Waterstones and grab a copy of Kenneth's book now people are also going to want to find you uh, and read about some of the things that you're writing about and researching where can they find you?
1: Well I have a website uh, uh, com, where it's possible to uh, contact me there um, otherwise <coughs> I can be contacted always through the publishers Amberley. Amberly. They're very, very good, very responsive. So I think if you've any, any particular question, uh, just write to Amberly and I'll be happy to answer and engage.
0: And I know people are going to want to get in contact with you. So it's great to, to find those websites. And I will agree, Amberly are really on it when it comes to email. So if you have any questions, do, do certainly email through them. Now, thank you very much for coming on, Kenneth. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I've learned so much uh, today.
1: Thank you. Th- thank you for your questions. And I've really enjoyed uh, uh, going on this tour tour of Russian history with with, with you as well. I um, enjoy your podcast very much. Um there um I'm surprised there's not more, more like them. The format is very popular in Russia. I know I love watching the the sort of Russian equivalent, and uh, they have they have millions of viewers, so I also wish wish you the equivalent.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Kenneth. That's really kind of you. And I certainly hope that I'd have a million followers one day. So (laughs) now, thank you guys. Now, if you enjoy listening to the History of Jackson podcast and the content that I create, do consider subscribing to Past and Present Plus on Apple Podcasts. It will help me as a creator continue to do what I do and get the time to produce and edit these podcasts. So thank you very much
1: for listening, and I'll see you all next episode.